0: y'all hear me yeah. how we doing fam doing good well we're going to read in matthew 18 in a second but um, before i do so meet me in matthew 18 i want to just reiterate what rob just said about the children's choir i walked down there today and they were on fire down there so get your kids involved uh, with that it's going to be a really joyful time that'll be june 30th as well here um, at the church so make sure you're here, here with us to listen as they sing We're going to be in Matthew 18, so go to verse 1 with me. Matthew 18. (laughs) At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin! than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them had gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? (coughs) And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, I am aware that the words on the pages we just read were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. They were spoken by our Savior, Jesus Christ. They were spoken by you and they're true and they're important, but they're hard. And I pray as we dive into them and as we learn from them and as we seek to live them, would you help us, God, to have faith to do so? would you enter into our hearts, send the Holy Spirit, and help us to be Christians who follow their Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene was picturesque, air clear. The birds were chirping, the sun was shining, and warming his arms as he churned again the warm and moist earth. It was paradise, or so it had been. The vineyard he tended used to grow with little water and sunlight. It was all he could do to keep the grapes from overflowing the branches. But each day the vines had begun to resist. The birds seemed to be chirping at a higher pitch and it was giving him a headache. It was so much work anymore, and he only had just enough for his family. And then there was his brother, that goody-two-shoes, always going above and beyond, offering his best lamb for the sacrifice. Who am I describing? Fourth through sixth graders among us. Do you know what story I'm referencing? Does anybody else have any ideas of where in the Bible we might be? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. That's right, You have got some good Jeopardy players in there. Uh, Cain and Abel. Abel in Cain's eyes. Abel had the inside track to God's good graces. Every day, as he offered those sacrifices with an ever-widening smile, that adoration to God, it disgusted Cain. Cain had begun to envy his brother. And slowly, as years passed, that envy gave birth to jealousy. And that jealousy matured to hate. And that hate produced death. Cain took his brother to the field, murdered him in secret. From paradise to perdition. And we hear God approach Cain and say, Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain replies, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So he lies, and he's exposed. But Cain's answer to God's question reveals that sin had seeped deeper in his heart to a place that was beyond just a momentarily rash killing or a rash act of anger in murdering his brother. He was essentially saying, I have no responsibility for him. He is nothing to me. And I wonder, have you answered Cain's question? Are you your brother's keeper? More directly, what responsibility do you have to the people seated around you, to your church family? Maybe you've answered Cain's question already. You are not your brother's keeper. You've tried to pursue somebody who sinned against you, and they only ended up burning you as a result. So you're in a place where you're just like, listen, You do you, I'll do me, and we'll just be cool. Or maybe you're in a place where you're saying, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to go after you or talk to you anymore. Matthew 18 answers Cain's question. Matthew 18 tells us that we need to have a response that's different than Cain. We are our brother's keeper. God has given us a divine command in this text to pursue each other. Way beyond just seeking to love each other and to not sin against each other, we have to pursue each other when we sin and when they sin. We need to have a a, a disposition towards each other where we're affected when somebody falls away. When somebody's caught in sin, it needs to hit us in the heart. We can't give up on them. We can't stop pursuing them. We can't stop running after them. We can't pull punches from them. We can't withhold forgiveness from them. Matthew 18, this whole chapter teaches us that we are, if we're going to be truly great followers of Jesus Christ, that's going to play itself out in us responding to each other's sin with courage and with grace. The courage and the grace of the Father. And as a church, we're in a series. This is the fourth part where we've been looking at what Matthew teaches us about what Jesus has said his church is to be and how it's supposed to function. And today, I get to help us see from this text how we're supposed to function as a church in restorative discipline. And I wish time permitted for me to just like unpack all this chapter, uh, but we don't have time for that. And uh, so I'm going to focus primarily on verses 15 through 20, that if your brother sins against you section. Uh, But before we dive into those verses, let's look at the beginning of the chapter just to get some context. So verse 1 says this, at the, that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you got to kind of be amazed at this, right? The brashness and the boldness of the disciples to come to Jesus and ask this. I've never asked my boss this, have you? So uh, how do I get to be important? Or uh, how can I get promoted? How can I take your job? Right? There's a sense where they're just coming to Jesus with this, all of it out in front. And I expect Jesus to be like, put down, get behind me, Satan, kind of moment, right? But Jesus, in verse 2, responds. He just legitimately answers their question. It's not wrong to be great in the kingdom of heaven, but it looks a particular way. So let's read in verse 2 what he says. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he takes their question and he doesn't respond by laying out a workout plan or a 12-step plan for productivity or teaching him how to practice mindfulness to find his center or shoot for the stars but land in the clouds kind of language. Instead, he brings up a kid. So I actually asked ahead of time, my son, Tristan, to come on up here so we can have a visual of this. And also, Paul Kostikov, who is not my son, uh, come on up. Now, Tristan, you can just stand right here, buddy. Paul is probably one of the only people in our congregation that I fear. <laughs> I've played basketball with him, and I still have the bruises to show, it, show for it. Um, and I bet you the disciples, when they were asking this question, they had in mind someone like Paul. Guy, you better call Paul, right? When you, when, you, when you need something fixed or when you just need a brother to be like, squad, roll out, we're taking this, right? Because Paul, you know, Paul's kind of like the proverbial Goliath, right? But God takes Tristan, someone like Tristan, and says, here's your example. You want to be great in this church? You want to be great in this community? This is what it looks like. And we should all be asking, what in the world? Why did you bring a child? They are like the weakest. No offense. They're like the weakest, right? They're always in a position of need. But the text says it particularly. Did you see verse 4? Look at verse 4. It says, whoever humbles himself like a child. Right? So there's a particular aspect of children, not just being childish or immature or easily frightened, or something like that. But actually, there's an endowed natural humility to kids. Where they don't make the decisions, they follow, they trust, they cling, right? They take a place of less importance. They naturally put others before themselves and follow. And that's what God's calling us to do in this passage. And it's going to set the whole framework for our church discipline. So guys, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you so much for coming up. Appreciate it. So this is pretty amazing, Jesus' tactic. Not get behind me, Satan, but let me just teach you a lesson right here. Bring this kid up. And he humbles them. He says, you wanted to be great. This is what it looks like, a small child. They wanted to be great. And Jesus shows that they have to become other centered They have to become humble in the way they think about themselves. And now Jesus is going to shift the language. He's going to seize this opportunity to teach them about the way they should treat each other. Now he's going to refer to the little ones as Christians. The lost sheep are Christians. The brother in sin is a little one who we need to preciously cherish as our Father does. So let's look at that in verse 12. Turn there with me, verse 12. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain? and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. No one's greater than the Father. And he shows this in his sacrificial love for the lost sheep. He goes after the sheep he's willing to potentially impoverish himself, right? Leaving his livelihood in the 99 to go out into dangerous lands after there's just one sheep. He loves that sheep, and he rejoices over that sheep more than if the old 99 would stay. And so the father pursues, he finds, he rejoices, and Jesus says that's how you should pursue each other. He's you to be great you got to put others first you have to pursue each other like you love one another am i my brother's keeper yes yes i am my brother's keeper and what we're going to find in the remaining verses verses 15 through 20 is this theme this is our main theme if you're taking notes jesus commands us to respond to our brother's sin with courage and grace of the Father. Jesus commands that we respond to our brother's sin with the courage and the grace of the Father. We're precious in God's eyes, even when we go astray, even when we sin. And we are to be each other's keepers and go after each other when we get lost, when they get lost. We can't bail on each other. We can't condemn each other with a zero tolerance policy of you're out. We've got to go after them. That's what restorative discipline really is. So in verses 15 through 20 now, we'll see this played out in the process, the goal, and the basis of church discipline. The process, the goal, and the basis. Those are our three points, and they're all going to funnel back to that idea that Jesus is commanding us respond to your brother's sin with the courage and the grace of the Father. So, point number one, process. Let's read in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we see in this a process of how to relate to each other when we're caught in sin. And I must just clarify, this passage is primarily talking about not just petty small grievances we might have with each other that we can forbear and look past and just extend love to these are grievous sins these are blatant sins habitual sins and so what he's talking about is when you find yourself in a place where something like 1 corinthians 5 verse 9 is happening sexual immorality greed swindling idolatry or like 1 Timothy 3 or sorry one Titus 3 says sowing divisions and ripping apart the flock or like 2 Thessalonians 3 says idleness where you're refusing to do anything these types of sins are the ones that are in mind here that this process applies to so let's look at the process we go first to them by ourselves verse 15 if there's no repentance we bring one to two other witnesses to call them to repentance If they still do not change, we tell the whole church community that's involved. If they still remain unmoved, we must remove them from membership and begin to relate to them as those who don't believe. And at each step, we are to provide sufficient time for conviction of sin and repentance to be shown. So it's pretty simple, frankly. But that doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it's not gut-wrenching, scarring. Those of you who have been through this with someone, maybe yourself, you know, these are some of the hardest words to live out in Scripture. And because of that, the world offers us alternatives, and our hearts like to seize them. Here are some of those options that our hearts tend to cling in place of verses 15 through 17. Option number one you're dead to me, we're done. Right? You hear that a lot on television programs. Go cold, shun them, cut them off. Zero tolerance policy, you burn me, you're gone. Militant. But these verses indicate that my response should be a greater pursuit of the individual when they sin against me. I should double down in my pursuit Leave the 99, right? Go after that precious little one. We're not to, to blast them. We're to go to him, not send a scathing text, not blast them on social media, not confront them in front of a large group first, not go in missiles blazing, but with love in our hearts and kindness on our lips, even as we speak the truth. So option number two, another option the world gives us. Tell everyone you know about what they did. Because you know what? This hurts and I want to make sure everybody knows just how terrible this person is. I want to affect them. I want to get back at them. Slander them to get back at them. Blast them on social media. Text all your friends and just let them know how hard it is to be with your spouse, right? Just get it out of my chest, right? But our text says in verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The privacy and protection of a person's reputation and integrity is one of the key components of these verses. We're only to broaden the circle of those who know as that person continues to persist in unrepentance. When we fail to keep things private, We're fighting sin with sin. That's not God's way. God does not justify sin in our hearts because someone sinned against us. We are to stand in holiness and in love in response to sin. Option number three the world gives us. The them fighting words or I got hands for all y'all approach. You see this one a lot on social media, don't you? You want to sin against me? You don't even know who you're messing with, right? The, you want to sin? I'm going to castigate you. I am going to make you wish you were never born, right? I'm going to beat you over the head with my offenses, make you crumble. I'm going to be nails down the chalkboard, a throbbing headache until you're destroyed. You know, and then probably a little lit emoji at the end of that right there. We can approach each other with gavel in hand, ready to judge, ready to condemn. So I know I have to tell you this, but if you resist, bam! Right? We're judging you. That's not the approach here, is it? After one attempt, what do we do? Bring others with us so that our charge can be checked. Are we seeing things accurately? Others come and they back it up. And even then, it needs to be supported by the broader church community. Our response is not to immediately put hands on them, but it's to invite others into the situation to, to ask, Am I seeing something unclear right here? So then, verse 16 tells us specifically that we were to bring two or three witnesses so the charge that we have can be substantiated by two or three witnesses. That's actually taken from a principle in the Old Covenant Law, in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Um, the Israelites were, were very prone and, and, and uh, vulnerable to false accusations. And so God put in Deuteronomy 19 protection that in order for someone to truly be charged, it had to be substantiated by two or three witnesses. And Jesus, in teaching that here, helps us see that all of the, the teachings about justice and the applications of justice in that old covenant apply to us today. He's basically quoting the Old Testament here and saying, due process, making sure there are two or three witnesses, that stuff is still important today. So what's supposed to happen if two or three witnesses come and the person still resists? Well, verse 17 tells us we should tell it to the church. At this point, the unrepentant sinner has forfeited their right to privacy. They're just continuing in sin, and the church should stand in unity and call them to repentance. Notice the incredible protections that are in this passage for those who are accused, right? Due process, time, sufficient time for them to come to faith, to change and repent. Notice the protections for those who are sinned against, Someone can't just keep sinning against someone indefinitely, can they? They're going to be held to account by the whole church community at a certain point who will stand in defense of that person. So the, in this passage, we're already seeing the care of Jesus for his community. He knew what we'd be like. Know, 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 he knew this world we'd be in, and he's giving us protections for it. And what's, you know, kind of implicit in this text is explicitly said elsewhere in Scripture as well. Paul in Galatians 6 talks about this restorative kind of church discipline process. Galatians 6 verse 1, I think there'll be a slide for this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So all through this process... We're to be marked by a spirit of gentleness. This this is going to look practically in the way we speak to this person and in allowing sufficient time, having patience for this person to grow. And then finally, verse 17 tells us that if our brother still remains unrepentant, we're commanded to let him be as to you, a Gentile and a tax collector. Maybe you were like, why Gentile and tax collector? Why not just like an outsider or something like that? What's the deal with that? Well, these, these words are really particularly chosen by Jesus because in Jesus' time, Gentiles and tax collectors were the most morally bankrupt folks in the Jewish people's eyes. You know, Gentiles, you, you, they were people that were apart from God. Tax collectors were people who had forsaken their heritage and sold out for money. So we see there's actually a massive shift going on in how we're supposed to relate to this person. Before, they were a brother who should be following Jesus' commandments and should look like a follower of Jesus. At this point, our expectation changes to fit those that we have the least expectations of, like a Gentile or a tax collector. You wouldn't expect them to follow Jesus' words at that point. So we need to change the way we relate to them. And in one sense, that does mean that we just begin to orient to them as unbelievers, as people that don't believe in Jesus. Now, that, that one of those things that can happen when you hear that is we can misinterpret that and misapply that by just shunning the person. That can happen where people walk away from the person when they see them in public. They refuse to talk to the person. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying there needs to be a shift in the way we communicate and orient towards these people. It does mean we need to remove them from membership. It does mean that we need to ask them to stop taking the Lord's Supper, the communion in our midst. Because those two things are outward signs of someone who has had an inward saving reality in their heart take place. And it doesn't make sense for someone to continue to have those if they are unrepentant in their heart. If they're not following Jesus, they shouldn't have the outward signs that show that they're following Jesus. But you know what? Similarly to the error of, sh- of shunning, right? Where some people can shun and they shouldn't do that. There's an opposite error as well. Where we can continue relating to that person the same exact way we did before. It's like nothing changed but you know what jesus chose those words gentile and tax collector for a reason you know gentiles jewish people weren't supposed to go in their houses tax collectors you weren't supposed to share a meal with them in that time so jesus is saying there there needs to be a break of your christian fellowship with this person your table fellowship that intimate fellowship that you have with your brothers and sisters in christ now in this time having a meal with somebody at a table meant something far more than today, right? You have dinner with somebody, it doesn't mean you pledged anything to them, right? You might just be having fun together. At this time, when you, when you had broke bread with somebody, you had them in your house, it, Word got on the street, you guys were aligned, you were allies, you were together in that intimate circle of fellowship. And, and it's, it's just not appropriate for someone to enter that level. So, so we do see a shift here. We have to be careful that we don't just bar the doors to our house or bar the doors to our church on Sunday. We should pray people, come. Please come. Hear the gospel. Please continue to be with us. You might even invite them into your home, but your orientation towards them needs to continue to be a call to repentance and a warning of where they're at. Uh, My wife and I went through a situation with a friend who went through uh, the church discipline process at a previous church, and that person left the church, and didn't follow through uh, on repentance, and, and they just started attending another church that didn't practice church discipline. And the church wasn't even fully, um, I think, aware of the situation at that time. And this person started relating to me and my wife as though, oh, look, isn't it great? Isn't, isn't God so good in my life? I'm making new friends and I'm growing in, in God. And we had to be very clear with this person. You're still in sin. We want you to be restored, but you need to come back and be reconciled before you move back to that church. We need to warn you because you're in a scary place if you're unrepentant. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, Paul says this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So removing someone from membership doesn't mean we don't talk to them, but it does mean we break from Christian fellowship together. Doesn't mean you can't interact with them, doesn't mean you can't invite them over, doesn't mean you can't share a play date at the park, but it does need to be different there does need to be a shift because that person's sin isn't primarily against you it's against their creator you know david in psalm 51 murdered someone and raped their wife right horrible incident and he was able to say in truth that i sinned against you but first and foremost i sinned against god this person is not in danger of experiencing your anger this person is in a dangerous place with respect to their relationship with the lord we need to make sure we're warning them as a brother please hear me so we see this process of restorative discipline it's a process that jesus gave us he commands us to respond to our brother's sin with the courage and the grace the Father. This process requires courage, doesn't it? It requires the, the shepherd's courage of leaving the 99 to go for the one, to not give up, to keep going. Knowing you might be burned, right? Knowing this is going to be hard. My kids might be affected. There's a lot of things going on. This is hard. But we are called to this. This process is gracious, isn't it? It's not a one time, you don't repent, bam, you're out. There's, there's time. There's more than one person coming in. It's a gracious process. And even, even if that person is removed from membership, there's still a gracious disposition towards them. We continue to, to treat them as a brother, not as an enemy, right? So that's the process of restorative church discipline. Let's look at the goal of all this. This is our second point. The goal of restorative church discipline. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's the goal? The goal is to regain your brother. They're wandering. They're in danger to bring them back to the fold of God. They were lost sheep. And we leave the 99 with the Father in an attempt to bring them back. The goal is not to make them shamed for no reason. The goal is not to punish them for no reason. The goal is to help them see where they're at and invite them back and restore them to fellowship. Satan is roaming around like a lion ready to devour. And they are a sheep teetering on the edge of his lion's den. That's what's happening. That's why the goal is played out in such an aggressive and systematic way. Because we really care about this person being restored. But notice also that this provides, this process provides justice and protection for the sinned against and for the falsely accused. Someone's falsely accused. It needs to be substantiated by more than one witness. Jesus was protecting his people. The person that was sinned against, the whole church takes up their cause, right? There's a sense where God cares about restoration, but he doesn't do so in a way that just forgets about his just and perfect nature. This process preserves that, even while maintaining that goal, the person would be regained. So that's the process, that's the the goal. What's the basis for all this? So how do we have confidence to do this? I see a lot of your faces. And there's some people, I think, thinking like, I don't know if I can do this. Right? There's some people who say, I don't want to go through this again because you've been through something like this. How can we have confidence? What's the basis? Well, verse 18 is going to help us out. Verse 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven those verses sound really familiar don't they we just heard them like two weeks ago or so in matthew 16 where jesus told peter that he was the rock right And on this rock, I'll build my church. And there's this sense where what Peter binds will be bound in heaven. What Peter loosens will be loosened in heaven. And here we're seeing this is extended to the whole church community, right? This is an amazing thing because what God gave to Peter now is given to the disciples as a group. And if you think about it, in light of what he was doing at the beginning of this chapter, talking about the whole community, this is actually a charge given to all of us, to you, Risen Hope Church. This is something that that he's extending. Even the the words in the text shifts from singular in verse 17 to plural in verse 18 to underscore that, okay, this is for all y'all here as you're doing this here. So what does he say? He says, whatever is bound on earth by you will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. So whenever the church binds... She has a divine authority granted to her to do that from heaven. The church has been given a mandate from God to bind a follower of Jesus as a member and to loosen the unrepentant person from the church. Now, don't get this backwards. Sometimes you can read this text and be like, so I become a Christian if I become a member? That's not what this verse is saying. Just like with baptism and communion, they don't save you but they're outward signs that you have been saved, that's the same thing here. Church membership is an outward sign of your citizenship in heaven as a saint, right? And you can see that specifically in these words a little bit more clearly in the original. This is what it would say if I were gonna translate this literally. It would say in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth and loose on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Not that what you bind makes God bind it in heaven, or what you loose makes God loosen it, but when you do that, you can have the confidence that God, long before time began, was willing this to take place. And he's bringing his plans into fruition through you, through you weak little ones. So we can go through the steps of Matthew 18, those hard steps. With massive comfort. Our Father's will cannot be thwarted. And we are instruments in His divine and massively powerful, caring hands. So on what basis do we do this discipline process? On the basis of the unstoppable will of the Father. That's that's a pretty great basis, isn't it? Secondly, did you notice verses 15 through 17 aren't given to us as a parable or a story of something that happened? They're phrased in the imperative as commands. These are not just, this is not just a story that's recounted. It's Jesus looking at all of us and saying, do this. So Jesus is our Lord, and we have to bow our knee to his will. To not do this process is to disobey. To not do this process is to be unfaithful. There's no wiggle room. And actually, it's interesting in Corinth, that uh, Corinthians letter, there's two and one and two Corinthians. We see in one Corinthians, Paul rebuked the church of Corinth for not practicing discipline. You guys are really well taught. So you know, I think Tim referenced this a few weeks ago, that the church of Corinth was messed up, Right? You had someone sleeping with their mother-in-law. You had people getting drunk on communion, like partying before the service. You had people suing each other, like court cases ongoing in the, in the people. You had people denying the resurrection. You had people like using the spiritual gifts to gain status in politics. It was a royal mess in Corinth. And so you know what the amazing thing is? Everybody who wasn't doing those things in Corinth wasn't saying anything. So what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11? I think we have a slide for this. In 1 Corinthians five eleven, Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This is a pretty amazing verse. Did you notice what Paul said? He he said, for what have I, Paul, to do with judging outsiders? He's saying it's not my position to deal with the sin that's happening in Corinth. It's yours, Corinth. There was a mandate from Jesus that was given to this church to exercise discipline and hold these people to purity and to holiness. And you know what? If you read them in the book of Revelation, you're going to read a lot of stuff that might confuse you at first. But one of the clearest sections is Revelations 2 and 3. They're letters to the churches where he's encouraging and he's correcting them. One of the primary things he corrects about the churches is their failure to practice discipline, to purge the evil from their midst. This is a huge issue, folks. It's not secondary. This is a primary thing. It's vital in God's eyes that we practice church discipline in a restorative process with the goal of bringing someone back, right? So on what basis so far do we exercise this discipline process? On the basis of divine commands. On the basis that the New Testament rebukes churches that don't do it. And on the basis that we have to be like the Father and not sit idly by as our brother or sister wanders into danger. We have to seek them and love them and not give up on them. Jesus commands us to respond to our brother's sin with courage and with the grace of the Father. But we're not done. We haven't read verse 20 yet. And verse 20 contains such an encouragement for us. Spirit of God, I pray this verse would fall on us as encouragement. As we see this process, would you fill us with your spirit now? With conviction, with confidence from these words. Verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This verse is quoted a lot when you're about to pray, isn't it? And that's a a good application. Don't stop doing that. But the primary application is what? When we bind, when we loosen, when we go to our brother who is in sin, who is with us? Who is with us? Jesus is with us. I am with you. We have divine commands. We have divine authorization. But more than that, we have the guiding presence of our Savior who did not leave us alone. The disciples were probably trembling in their boots as they heard this. And Peter, right after this, is like, so how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And that reveals to me that Peter was getting it a little bit. This is hard. This is going to be so ridiculously traumatizing for me and we should be trembling too because jesus lays out greatness not as incredible spiritual gifts or a teaching rhetoric that just makes everybody fall over in adoration it's not a massive web of influence it's not having an impressive personality it's a courageous and gracious heart for one another rooted in a low estimation of myself and a panoramic view of the heart of the Father. That is heavy and hard. We're messy, aren't we? If we hang out, it's going to be great. But if we go out on vacation together for a week by day three... You're probably not going to like me anymore because sin abounds. We struggle. We are frail. Surfacy Christianity is so much easier. I can like you on Facebook. I can just say a little prayer request and unspoken where no one really knows what's going on and get a feeling of spirituality, light. That's easy. but That's not what God's calling to us, and that's not going to get us through, is it? That's not what the gates of hell will not prevail against. It's this process that is Jesus' scalpel. Jesus' binding wounds. Jesus' ointment. Jesus' building us up into the maturation of himself. We can't do this process though, friends. We can't do it alone. But we are not alone. Say that with me. We are are not alone listen friends was it too much for jesus when there was nothing in existence before god no jesus spoke the world into existence he spoke life into dust to make us he spoke the stars into orbit he spoke the waves into currents he spoke lightning and thunder into the skies And he is with us. We are not alone. Say that with me. We are not alone. Listen, was it too much for Jesus when you were running from him? Were you too fast? Could he not keep up? No one outruns Jesus Christ. His love is tenacious and his personhood is irresistible. He drew you against all odds, you running towards hell. He plucked you from your path with his unstoppable love, and he is with us. He is here among us. We are not alone, amen? We are not alone. And listen, was it too much for Jesus when when you were given a death sentence? When you were dead to right in your transgressions and sins? No way. Jesus said, you're given a death sentence, and I'm going to march right towards it with a cross on my shoulder. I will be nailed to it. I will dive into the depths of it, and I will rise victorious over it, crushing it. Jesus took the vice grip of death that was around our neck, squeezing tighter day after day, and he ripped those fingers apart and threw them to the side. They weren't weakened they weren't just lessened in their strength. They were broken. And Jesus is here with us. These words are ridiculously hard. Don't play yourself. You're going to want to bail. You're going to want to get back. You're going to want to broadcast. You're going to want to judge. You're going to want to just do you. But Jesus is with us. Listen. Listen. We were addicted, but Jesus freed us. We were lonely, but Jesus joined us. We were all by ourselves, every bridge burned, and Jesus built a new bridge on Calvary. Didn't he? You were by yourself. You burned all your resources. No one cared about you. You were their enemy. And he said, be my brother. And he said to you, I will die for you. And I have to pause here. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm just afraid for you. It's a lonely place to be. It's a scary place to be. There's a devil roaming like a lion. But there's a community here that by the grace of God wants to wrap you up in their arms. So if you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, please just be honest like all of us and recognize that you've sinned that you could never achieve the standard of perfection that God requires, please just fall on your knees and accept Jesus into your life. He can save you. There's no death sentence. There's no addiction. There's no previously burnt relationship that he can't heal in himself. Come to Jesus. Join the flock of God. Even right now, if you're feeling his call, the Father of God has left the 99. And send Jesus Christ, and he's calling you. He's calling you. Hear his call. But friends who trust in Christ, in what confidence do we practice restorative church discipline? With the same confidence we breathe. With the same confidence that we claim the cross's forgiveness. With the same confidence we claim the resurrection's power. The same confidence we fight sin in our lives. Jesus, he is our confidence. He is our hope. And he will see us through. He has not left us alone. It's not our job to just, you know, strap up our, you know, our boots and manage it and fix it ourselves. He's with us. He's helping us to bow our knee. With the courage and the grace of the father to bow our knee to jesus to commit to holding each other accountable to commit to saying brother i will help you if you're sinning to say please hold me accountable if i go astray he's here to help us so we run after each other knowing that we will likely only invite more mistreatment knowing that it's not going to be this easy paradise when we practice discipline but we do it with hope and with help. We do it with confidence, knowing that he hasn't left us alone. And he who cares for us cares even more for the, for the person that's wandering. So in conclusion, um, by God's grace, I just was talking to one of our members last week about how restorative church discipline has played a role in their life, that to, to place them on the road where they are today. So I actually asked Helen Eppright if she'd come and share how God has used this process in Matthew 18 to change her life. So let's welcome her. Come on up, Helen.
1: I am not alone. I'm gonna read this, sorry. I had been in a relationship that had been I had been asked to step away from. The Matthew eighteen teaching was put into effect as a last step in the Matthew eighteen process, being an active member of the church, who was not receptive to some of their counselling, I was asked to come before the elders. The person I had been in a relationship with had not been a member and therefore would not and could not be held accountable for their role in the relationship. I disagreed with the elders' perception of where my relationship was at that point, as it had been over for some time. However, their decision was to excommunicate me until I came back to them in full repentance. Being a typical 21-year-old, I disagreed with their decision. I left. Repercussions of church discipline and excommunication for me included being asked to move out of a family member's home, being completely ignored by members, and having church members walk up to me and then turn their backs to me in social settings. God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed me to cross paths with a current Sovereign Grace senior pastor, Bauer Evans. We were classmates in psychology class at Westchester University he introduced me to Covenant Fellowship. When I walked into the Robert Gauntlet Center to, to attend Covenant, I felt that I had come home. Little did I know what was to follow. Unfortunately, or fortunately, when I had my interview for membership with now former Sovereign Grace Senior Pastor Dave Harvey, I was honest about my excommunication and the decision of church discipline from my previous church. Dave Harvey's response was, was for me to go back to the original church for at least six months, ask forgiveness, and to work out my church discipline with a repentant heart. Having seen the integrity of the church leaders at Covenant, I trusted Dave Harvey, and so I left Covenant and returned to my old church, repenting, asking forgiveness, and then working out my church discipline within the youth ministry, restoring relationships and trust among the elders and my friends. Although asked to be there for six months, I in fact stayed there a year. God was good. I'm not saying it was easy. It was a very humbling experience. I had to resist the need to justify my actions and bite my tongue on many occasions. But open arms awaited me upon my return to covenant with many knowing the full extent of my sin. I am a firm believer in church discipline. Submission is what it's all about. It freed me from the weight of oppression that sin had held me in. It is not an easy path to walk. Again, it is very humbling. Pride stood in my way often. It is far easier to live a lie than to walk in the truth. Ultimately, the joy of being free and totally loved by those who walked with me not just at Covenant, but at the church I was excommunicated from, was far more satisfying than being in sin. I was blessed to then become a member of Covenant. I have not looked back since walking through the church discipline process, knowing that it changed my life for the better. Being held accountable to my elders and church family is critical in my walk through life as a church member and a member of society. My God is gracious and faithful all the time. He has and does look out for me in all things, using every possible way to break, refine, and remold me into his image. I consider that church discipline was one way he helped do that with me. The bottom line is that I was in sin, and no matter what the other circumstances were that led up to the point of my confrontation, and then being held accountable for my sin, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The Lord often takes me back to this verse, 1 Samuel 15:22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in, in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed the fat of the rams." In fact, I come back to that verse time and time again as a reminder of the fruits and beauty of walking in God's obedience. The magnitude of having leaders who stand by their convictions, standing on the Word of God and following through with those convictions has had a very powerful effect on my life. My husband and I were under another pastor's care many years ago. The pastor watered down the commands of the Lord and the very clear teachings of Matthew 18 There was no follow-through, the pastor's words meant nothing, and gave no hope whatsoever. Dave Harvey's commitment to steer a potential member of Covenant back into the direction of the other church to fulfill their church discipline and find restoration has had a lasting impression on my faith. This is another reason why to have gone through church discipline with pastors of deep conviction, not swayed by the world, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, makes me feel very blessed and a very loved member of my church.